This is your host, Grant Vermeer, Naval Academy Class of 2017, and I'm your Academy Insider. It's my goal to be your guide through the Naval Academy experience by sharing my stories and providing you inside information into the life of a midshipman. Academy Insider is in no way officially affiliated with the United States Naval Academy. All of the content on Academy Insider is my own and does not reflect the views of the United States Naval Academy, the United States Navy, nor the Department of Defense. So right before my time as a detailer at the Naval Academy, my dad sent me a book called It's Your Ship. And he's like, hey, dude, you have to read this book. It provides a ton of great insight. It's really refreshing, really different than a lot of different leadership books. And I think you'll get a lot out of it. And you definitely need to read it before you start your time being a detailer. So as a result, I picked up a copy of It's Your Ship and loved every second of it. And today, guys, on Academy Insider, we're joined by Mike Abershoff, who is a Naval Academy graduate, former CEO of the USS Benfold, and the author of It's Your Ship. He tells us all about his time at the Naval Academy, his time as a surface warfare officer, his transition to the private sector in writing the book, and then shares a lot of great leadership insight and excerpts from his book. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode, so make sure to tune in. You guys are going to get a lot out of it. It, and I really hope you enjoy it. Thanks. All right. Uh, hey, thank you, sir, so much for coming on the Academy Insider Podcast. Really appreciate having you. My pleasure, Grant. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Uh, before we get going into today's episode, if you don't mind providing our audience a little bit of background about yourself, where you're from, how you came to the Naval Academy, uh, but then also a little background about your midshipman self, what company you're in, what your major was, and just a little bit about you as a midshipman. Sure. I'm from uh, Altoona, Pennsylvania, and I played football. And I was offered uh, scholarships to Temple, Duke, William and Mary, West Virginia, mm-hmm. and all three service academies. Okay. And I had never been to Annapolis, and they said come down, and I visited it, and I loved it. Uh, I love the water. I live on the water now uh, <laughs> in Miami Beach, and so I've always been drawn to the water, and um, and that's why I went to the Naval Academy. People think it was because of academics. It was because uh, I went there to play football, and and I love the water. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was majored in political science okay. and I was in the uh, 29th company. Love and um, I was, I'm proud to say that I graduated in the top 80% of my class. So uh, I was fortunate to graduate, <laughs> but um, um, that's my story. And on service selection, I became a surface warfare officer. And um, I was fortunate to get assigned to uh, a so you get your service selection by class rank. Mm-hmm. And so those at the upper tier always pick the newest, sleekest ships. But they're competing against other top tier officers. Mm-hmm. I was assigned an old frigate uh, that was like 30 years old. <laughs> and I was competing against officers who couldn't make it on other ships. <laughs> so it was easy to stand out. And I had a, a commanding officer. Uh, who used to yell at us until veins popped in his neck and forehead. And the other officers couldn't stand the pressure. But, you know, I let things roll off me. If I screw up, um, you know, I'll take it aboard. But I was the only one who ever volunteered for special evolutions, Mm -hmm. like refueling, anchoring, uh, towing, uh, because I could take the pressure from the commanding officer and so I got pretty good at being a ship driver. And uh, as an ensign, I won the uh, Sink Pack Fleet um, Ship Handler of the Year Award. And I was the only ensign that year to, to win that award. It was because 
I got ship handling time. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the other officers who went to the cruisers were fighting against 30 other officers for bridge time. I, I had it all to myself. And yeah. so it ended up being um, a good thing that I went to a, a second tier ship because you were able to stand out and get more opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And did would you say that tough experience on the USS Albert, David, did that kind of show you a little bit at an early time in the Navy? how you wanted to command or did it even potentially cause you to think about maybe getting out? Was it a negative experience enough to do that? Or was it just something that, you know, your CEO screamed a lot, but you just got used to it. And then it was whatever after a couple of months. To be honest, I thought about getting out every day. (laughs) um, I saw my commanding officers and I thought, I think I can do better than this. Mm-hmm. And so the thought of commanding a ship is what drove me my entire career and wanting to prove that I could do it differently without the yelling and the screaming and the berating of people. Mm-hmm. And so you can learn from bad leaders just as much as you can from great leaders. And so every commanding officer, I would pick traits that I don't want to emulate and pick the traits that that appealed to me that I would like to uh, incorporate into my own leadership style. Absolutely. From, from that commanding officer, there were no traits that I wanted to, <laughs> to emulate, only ones that I wanted to avoid. And um, so, so you joke about graduating the top 80% of your class. Was SWO what you wanted to do, though? Was that always what you were like thinking about service selecting? Or was that, um, I guess, something that just happened uh, your first year? Well, um, I'm 6'4", and bunks on submarines are only six feet long. <laughs> so I would have to climb into the fetal position when we went out on familiarization (laughs) cruises on subs. (laughs) And um, I have bad eyes, so I couldn't fly. So the only option for me was to be a swell. Mm -hmm. And if I had to do over again, that's what I would choose today. Absolutely. Um, And how how was your Naval Academy experience? Uh, What did you feel like? um, Or I guess, how would you describe your four years in Annapolis? And how did it make an impact on uh, your time as a officer in the Navy, but also currently now today? To be honest, um, it is, as you know, it is tough being an athlete and and completing all the military requirements at the Mm -hmm. Naval Academy. And I found it extraordinarily tough to do both. Mm -hmm. And so what I remember most, well, the personal thing that I remember most is the lack of sleep at the Naval Academy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I could never get enough sleep. And I was always tired in class and it practice. And so uh, that's the thing that I remember most is uh, how sleep deprived I was. <laughs> and, and sir, I can guarantee that it's still absolutely the case. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Going to class is such a struggle. I don't think I probably sat down in my chair in only about 15 to 20 percent of my classes because there was there was just no chance. Well, just one of my no roommates chance. rode crew and mm-hmm. he worked out even more and he used class as a place to sleep. Sleep. <laughs> 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 just hot, hide in the reefer jacket, just the exactly. slide in there. Exactly. Uh, absolutely. So this, as we're recording this episode right now, this past Saturday, Navy beat Air Force in the football game in a truly an all-time classic, probably. It was. Um, with Air Force Week and Army Weeks and all that stuff that usually provide a little bit of chaos, a little bit of fun within the Brigade of Midshipmen, I was just going to turn over the question to you of, do you have any best stories from the Academy, whether they be entertaining, monumental? I only ask because usually a lot of the great stories come out of the Air Force and the Army Weeks. So 
at the academies, we have exchange students mm-hmm. and we also have exchange officers. And we had an army officer, Lieutenant Colonel Palmer, who taught chemistry. And he was a great teacher. He was a great instructor, but he drove an old Volvo. Mm-hmm. And for army week, several enterprising midshipmen went to his wife and said, at the pep rally, we want to destroy his Volvo. So she was in on it because she wanted a new car. So it, he was totally unaware of this. And out comes his Volvo. And the brigade of midshipmen proceeded to destroy it right in front of him with sledgehammers and, and everything else. It was a total, total wreck. But that's the type of chicanery that goes on uh, during uh, service weeks. Uh, absolutely. Great. And so you mentioned that you're part of the Navy Football Brotherhood and member of the 29th Company. All this time now, do you still have the ability to keep in touch with your teammates, your classmates, uh, and, and even your roommates now to this to this day? So by and large, the people I keep in contact with my roommates. Mm-hmm. And over the years, I had five of them and live in South Beach now. And every year, the five of them plus their spouses come spend a, a long weekend here. Next year, we're going to um, the Ar- Army, uh, the Navy Notre Dame game in Dublin, Ireland. And every year we kind of do like a a photo album of our visit here. But if you ask me the uh, lifelong bonds that have been forged, Mm -hmm. it's with my five roommates. And when we get together, we show the spouses that we have not matured (laughs) in uh, 37 years. We we revert back to being 18-year-olds. And uh, they're they're totally amused by it, but they, they don't understand it, but only... Somebody from the Naval Academy understands it. <laughs> That's hilarious. I love that because now already there have been two weddings for people from my company. So just like you, sir, my best friends still to this day are from my company and specifically my roommates, two guys, Jeremiah Harding and Christian Blanchard. And I just love them to death. And I've seen them twice basically since graduation. And they've both been at weddings. And I can assure you as well <laughs> that when we get back together, there has been no, no growth and maturity. So one of my uh, nephews just sure. graduated class of 2018. Oh, really? Fantastic. Oh, he's awesome. On, he's on the US Decatur, USS Decatur. Decatur. And uh, for spring break, he said, Uncle Mike, can I come down to South Beach for spring break? And I said, sure. <laughs> he said, well, can I bring seven classmates? So brought seven of his classmates, uh, company mates. Mm-hmm. And two of them were his roommates that he spent all four years with. I mean, that's a bond that I nobody in my company ever did stay with mm-hmm. the same roommates the whole time. But they are thick as thieves. And so um, they came down to South Beach. And uh, and I know a lot of people down here. Mm-hmm. And one of the premier hotels, there's a bowling alley in the basement. And um, there are four lanes. And I reserved them two lanes at midnight. Mm-hmm. And they go over at midnight. Bottle service already paid for by Uncle Sugar. <laughs> and Vaughn Miller, the Pro Bowl linebacker from the yeah. Denver Broncos, was there with a squad of people. They didn't have a lane. So my midshipman gave Vaughn Miller one yeah. of the two lanes. And so they bowled next to Vaughn Miller the whole night. So anyway, they're Instagramming their whole 10 days down here. And uh, a month later, I'm out in Phoenix uh, for an association event. And this association sponsored um, 10 universities around the country to do projects. And three of them were the service academies. Mm-hmm. And they take me to the Naval Academy booth. And there was a second class midshipman there. And they, she said, 
your Uncle Mike. He said, the whole brigade knows about you and the spring break that these eight had. And the whole brigade wants to come to your house for spring break next year. So, uh, that was go. my contribution. Uh, that's awesome. Did they come? Did you host all 1,000 midshipmen down in South Beach? Maybe no, but not I, this year? So it's funny when you know the eight were here, there would be mids in Fort Lauderdale on mm-hmm. spring break, and they would see the Instagram post. And so every day the eight would grow by like five or six. One day we had 20 midshipmen <laughs> in the swimming pool out here playing basketball. Oh, so, man. I mean, it was famous for the spring breakers in South Florida. Uh, oh, that's fantastic. But nobody ever did that for me when I was <laughs> I'd always go home to Altoona and put on 10 pounds from eating. There was nothing to do. Oh man. Uh, so, so those, those are all great stories. I do want to transition here shortly. Um, so you've, you have written a ton of extremely popular, really acclaimed books, including it's your ship, it's our ship, uh, get your ship together. But I want to start off by asking you about, uh, your ebook. Um, and it's kind of a published article entitled what you, what I learned at the Naval Academy, what you learned at the Naval Academy. Um, if you don't mind just talking a little bit about that, because it sounds like from the book that maybe you didn't necessarily have, as you were saying, these super fun spring break experiences or just generally a super fun time overall. But what did you learn at the Naval Academy and what were some of the key takeaways you have from your time in Annapolis? So our plebe summer, um, at night after dinner, uh, we would go over to Mahan Hall for lectures. Mm-hmm. And um, they would bring in uh, POWs from the Vietnam War and they would um, tell us their stories. And I remember, you know, we didn't have air conditioning back then in any of the academic rooms or in Bancroft Hall. And so we just sit there and sweat. You know, it's 95 (laughs) degrees, 100 percent humidity. We'd sit there and sweat in our white works. Hmm. But I would listen to the um, POWs and their tremendous um, stories of courage and perseverance. And I would sit there and ask myself, I wonder if I ever get called upon, why have the right stuff to do what they did? So if you ask me, um, what was most informative in my career, it wasn't the academics, although that's important. Mm -hmm. It was, um, watching heroes present their stories and then ask yourself, do I have the, the right stuff if I'm ever called upon? Mm-hmm. And so um, it was, you know, it was guys like John McCain, um, Dick Stratton, Douglas Brand Hegdahl. I mean, these are names that, you know, I still remember to this day from that lecture series uh, and during Clean Suburb. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you also talk about specifically how uh, misery loves company and how Plebe Summer forged some bonds for for you that that lasts a lifetime. Can you explain a little bit about what you think, what you see the role of Plebe Summer being in the future development of a future naval officer and their leadership journey? Well, at the time, I couldn't understand any of it <laughs> or how it was going to make me a better person. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it does do is force you to stop thinking about yourself and instead focus on the team and your squad and your, and your shipmates. Mm -hmm. And so you forge a sense of camaraderie and esprit de corps that you pull for each other and that you support each other. And, you know, your high school years may have been about you and your outstanding performance, but plebe summer is more about the group and the Mm -hmm. team um, the, so that you stop thinking about yourself, but for the, 
successive, you know, your shipmates. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of that entire idea of collaboration, communication, and teamwork just to get through an extremely difficult time exactly. uh, is, is extremely important. And you talk about someone who really helped your entire group and you specifically, and that was your friend Roy Bishop, uh, and how he kind of taught you how to lead with strength. And you mentioned that in your article. What exactly do you mean by that? And what did you take away from Roy's leadership during Plebe Summer that has been so monumental that you continue to talk about him to this day? So um, Roy went to NAPS. Mm-hmm. And for the parents of uh, future midshipmen listening, you know, we take in approximately 1,100 uh, midshipmen a year in each class. And about 225 of those are re- reserved for people who go to NAPS. And they're mostly athletes or, you know, sailors from the fleet who need help with math and science to get them a foundation. Mm-hmm. But their year at NAPS is basically a plebe year at the Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then out of the remaining 900 um, uh, inductees into each class, maybe 100 are from foreign militaries and foreign navies. And so when you get down to, you know, direct people from high school out of the 1100, there's only about 650 slots left for direct people coming from high school. So you're fighting for one of the 650 slots, and it's probably one of the most competitive um processes to get into any university in the country. Mm-hmm. So for parents, that's what you're, you're up against. Um, if you don't go to NAPS, you're fighting for one of 650 <laughs> slots. Mm-hmm. But um, my roommate was Roy Bishop and he had been to NAPS and they give us our sheets and they say, you know, you got to make your bed. And I know Admiral McRaven has a great book out called make your bed. Mm-hmm. I never made my bed because <laughs> um, I have five older sisters and they did all the work inside the house And my job was to cut the grass, shovel the snow, paint the house in the summer. Mm -hmm. I was responsible for outside the house, so I never made my bed. And so then, not only have I never made my bed, uh, I've never made hospital corners. And so I'm sitting there, you know, struggling, and Roy is looking at me like, you idiot. So he teaches me how to make my bed. And so um, he he could have kept that knowledge to himself. Mm -hmm. And he could have, you know, been the number one in our squad uh, because he had that experience that none of us had. Mm-hmm. But what Roy chose to do was to share that experience with the rest of us so that we could all get through it. And so, um, you know, Roy and I started a business together. Uh, we've been best friends uh, ever mm-hmm. since. And so these bonds that you form in Plebe Summer uh, mm-hmm. last your entire life, um, and, and and it's a great thing. It's probably yeah. one of the greatest things about the academy is those bonds that you forge. Absolutely. Uh, do you mind, sir, just ta- uh, talking a little bit about the business you guys started together? And is that still something that you're continuing to this day? So um, we started it at the height of the financial crisis back in 2008. And we invested in small startups. And um, Roy eventually got his MBA from USC. And so he applied his business sense and, you know, I kind of opened doors for them in the business community. Mm-hmm. Um, only one of the three has survived and it's uh, hasn't made a ton of money, but it's been a learning experience. <laughs> and uh, um, but Roy, Roy and I have learned along the way as well how tough it is to start a business. Mm-hmm. And so it gives us an appreciation for, you know, entrepreneurs and, and people who are willing to take risks. And sometimes you, you hit it big and other times you struggle. 
but you know, we we haven't lost our shirt, and uh, we we're we're still hopeful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, great. So in your book, um, it's your ship. You talk about this um, thing that you call managing up. So midshipmen, especially as plebes and youngsters. Uh, they can be 18 or 19 years old and kind of feel like a new sailor checking into a ship. They're still young within the brigade. Do you have any advice or thoughts about how younger midshipmen, especially youngsters, um, can kind of manage up as a midshipman? And how does that translate this idea of managing up to your career in the Navy or Marine Corps as a junior officer? So it's a long answer. Um, Before I got command of the ship, I was chosen as the number two assistant to the Secretary of Defense. Mm Mm-hmm. And between me and him as a three-star admiral or general, Colin Powell had the job. Mm-hmm. Admiral McRaven had the job as a three-star. John Kelly had the job as a three-star. And uh, what's interesting is Colonel Mattis was my desk, desk mate. <laughs> so, um, I've known Mad Dog since 1995 and worked with him. But anyway, um, so what's interesting about the military is the people that you serve with, you know, go on to do great things. Um, mm-hmm. And so... Um, also in our office was a guy by the name of Dr. Ash Carter, mm-hmm. and he went on to be Secretary of Defense, and Mattis went on to become Secretary of Defense. So you, um, you're really surrounded by quality people. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I was working for this three-star Army general, and my job was to push paper all day long. And every day a four-foot stack of paper would come into the office, and it was my job to go through this four-foot stack and uh, highlight what I thought was important for SECDEF to see. Well, I never got any training. They just threw me into the job and the general never trained me. And from my desk, I would get this four foot stack of paper down to maybe eight or nine inches. And from my desk, I could watch the general work all day long. And when it came to my stuff, he would throw 90 percent of what I highlighted and thought was important in the burn bag for destruction, which meant I had like a 10 percent effectiveness rating. And I'm struggling. I'm failing, flailing. And I wasn't happy uh, because I wasn't effective. And I actually thought about resigning because you know, I told you I think about resigning mm-hmm. every day. I was very miserable <laughs> in the job, and I couldn't imagine doing it for another 26 months. Mm-hmm. And then one day I said, you know what, before I resign, I'm going to try to train myself to think like the general. And every night he went home from work at 830, and I would go into his office. And I'm still there at 830, which was, you know, it was a very uh, time-intensive, uh, pressure-intensive job but I would take his burn bag and I'd empty it out onto his desk and I'd compare everything of mine that he threw away and compared it to what he sent on to the secretary. And what I tried to do was to get inside his mind and think like him. And by understanding what was important to him, it became important to me. And I eventually got that eight or nine inches of stuff down to maybe one or two inches every day. And I'd sit there and I'd watch him work and, um, he would just rubber stamp everything I sent in. And so I went from having like a 10% effectiveness rating to maybe 97, 98%. And I'm feeling good about myself. So I started to play another game with him in meetings. They never asked me for, I was not in a leadership position. I was a gopher. I was a paper pusher, but in meetings, I would sit in the back row and I would say, you know, I'd watch the presenters brief. And I would say to myself, if I'm the general, based on what's been presented, what uh, decision would I make? And I would try to anticipate what he would do. And if he made the same decision that I I made, it meant, gee, I can think like a three-star. 
If he made a different decision, it meant there was a gap in my training that I needed to go fill. And so uh, what happened was he started to trust me. And because I was always there with the solution before he ever asked for it, I could anticipate what the requirements were, be there with the solution. And he started to trust me and he started delegating responsibility to me. He put me in charge of the SecDef communications team, the security detail, the trip planning team. I had full bird colonels reporting directly to me and I'm a, I'm an 05 commander. And, um, I had 45 people reporting to me in a job that was, uh, traditionally a independent contributor job. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was because I would sit there and see how he made decisions and understand what his thought process was mm-hmm. and then be there with a solution, um, before he ever asked for it. And so what people can do as they're coming up through the ranks, watch your boss, find out what's important to him or her, try to understand how they think. And if you can be there, if you can anticipate events Mm -hmm. and be there with a solution before they ever ask for it, then that's how you uh, become more successful. And that's how you expand your aperture because Mm -hmm. you can see the big picture as opposed to just doing tasks, you're seeing the big picture of, of why it's important and how you, how you play into it. And so what I would advise, you know, any plebe on up, mm-hmm. um, under, try to put yourself in the, in the mind of who you're reporting to, understand what's important to them. And if it becomes important to you, then, then you become successful. Absolutely. I love that. In your book, you talk uh, greatly about the influence of Secretary Perry on your leadership. Were there any other key leadership takeaways you have uh, from your time working with him in addition to kind of thinking like your boss and just um, continuing to do that to continue to be more successful? Were there any other key leadership takeaways you have from your time uh, serving under him? um, He was a very humble man Mm -hmm. and he led with a sense of humility. And I call his leadership style excellence without arrogance. And, and it didn't matter what your rank was. You could be a private or you could be a general. If you had an idea how to improve something 1%, he wanted to hear from you. And um, I took that with me to the ship. I interviewed every sailor individually. And I said, you know, look, we can't change the rest of the Navy. But if you see something that we could improve 1%, I want to hear from you. And so what we were about on the ship wasn't radical change. It was just incremental change in a very large organization. Mm-hmm. And if you're improving 1% a day, nobody's going to touch you. Absolutely. And you talk all about that in, in your book, It's Your Ship. Do you mind just telling my audience a little bit, if they haven't read the book, a little bit more about your book uh, and what all is inside? So when I took command, it wasn't the worst ship in the Pacific fleet, but you know we were near the bottom. Um, the quarter before I took command, our retention rate was 8%. Um, we had a high accident rate and there was, the morale was very poor on the ship. And I'm here thinking about all the things I can't influence. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't get to choose the people I work with. I can't go back and ask for more money to get the job done. Um, I can't choose our missions. And so, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm not smart enough to turn this around because as, as we discussed, I graduated in the top 80% of my class. <laughs> so um, I said, I'm going to stop obsessing over the things I can't influence. Mm-hmm. And instead, I'm going to obsess over the things that I can. And I realized that one of the things I can influence is myself and how I show up 
to the people I'm trying to lead? Am I leading with ego or am I coming across with a sense of humility? And uh, I can change our culture. And people get wrapped around the axle about what culture is. To me, it's very simple. Would you want your son or daughter or your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife to come work for you every day and see you in action? If you're proud, you're on the right track. If you're, emb- if you're embarrassed, fix it. And I tried to fix everything I was embarrassed about. And we treated our people with respect and dignity. I interviewed every one of them individually. And what's amazing is the same crew that was performing near the bottom in 15 months, uh, we were awarded the Spokane Trophy, which mm-hmm. is the trophy for uh, most combat capable ship in the Pacific fleet. And um, my Commodore at the time was a guy you probably heard of, Jim Stavridis. Mm-hmm. He went on to be a four-star command of our NATO troops. And he emailed me and says, Mike, um, congratulations on winning the Spokane Trophy. But he said, don't get too cocky and arrogant. When I had command of a ship in the Atlantic fleet, my ship won the Battenberg Cup, which is the award for best ship in the Atlantic fleet. And he said, oh, by the way, to this day, my ship still holds the Navy's record in gunnery of 103.6 out of a possible 105 points. He said, until you can beat my score in gunnery, I don't want to hear from you and I don't want to hear from USS Benful. I never told the gunnery crew crew how to do it. I taped that email to the gun mount. (laughs) Three weeks later, went out and shot gunnery, shot 104.4. And I let the gunnery crew write the email response back to the admiral, uh, (laughs) letting him know what he could do with his Battenberg Cup. So anyway, (laughs) it's truly like a bottom to leader in our industry type story. Mm -hmm. In in years three and four after I left, um, uh, Benfold won the award for best ship in the entire Navy. Mm -hmm. And throughout my career, um, I saw ships that fell apart the day the commanding officer left because everything was being held together through force of their personality. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they don't, it's not good for the ship if the captain does everything and it falls apart the day the captain leaves. And so I always tried to um, lead and prepare for the future Mm -hmm. so that, because I I don't think that commanding officers final fitness report should be given to them the day they leave. I think it should be given a a year after they leave, Mm -hmm. because if you've trained for the future, Um, your, your ultimate performance should be judged a year after you leave the ship. And so, um, in years three and four, after I left the ship, they won the award for best ship in the Navy. And so, um, but anyway, we get featured in fast company magazine and, uh, Mm -hmm. the Harvard business review and, um, literary, literary agents started calling this, said, you ought to write a book. And I'm thinking, get real. I'm in the Navy. (laughs) I, mean, <laughs> I grew up in a house in Altoona, Pennsylvania of 10 people, seven mm-hmm. women and three men. We had one bathroom in our home growing up. And the house I live in in South Beach has five bathrooms. <laughs> and I visit every one every day just because I can. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, the, the things you remember and that drive you. Yeah. But um, so that's what I write about in It's Your Ship, our experience mm-hmm. and the lessons that I learned as the commanding officer. And the publisher thought I might sell 20,000 copies if I bought mm-hmm. the first 10,000. Yeah. And, um, and it's been 17 years, but it's your ship has now sold over 1.1 million copies. It's Jeez. published in 10 different languages. 
And uh, so I'm very blessed. I'm very fortunate and I don't, I don't take it for granted, but uh, I'm working just as hard today as I did in the Navy. And, and since I left the Navy. Yeah, a- absolutely. And, and sir, I'm, I'm a huge fan of yours. So I actually read uh, that book before my time as a detailer during plebe summer. And one thing that specifically stuck out with me, and it's something that I kind of continued to this day is you have a uh, a line in the book that says, as, as I saw it, my job was to create the climate that enabled people to unleash their potential. How did you, as a CEO of Benfold, really try to embody and embrace that culture of like, hey, I want to give you guys the power and the opportunity to be the best you can be and make that 1% contribution in a system in the Navy that generally uh, promotes or advertises and rewards micromanagement and getting like little things done and like really being kind of hands-on the whole time. How did you really embody that culture on board your warship? So I had a public address microphone right at my desk. Mm -hmm. And I literally interviewed every sailor individually, all 310 of them. And in the interview, I asked them three things. What do you like most about Benfold? What do you like least? What would you change if you were the captain of this ship? And if they gave me an actionable idea in that interview, I hit the public address microphone right then and there. Before the officers, before the chiefs knew about it, I hit the microphone and I said, Benfold, this is the captain. This is the idea I just got. This is who I got it from. It makes sense to me. We're going to implement it right now. I want your full support. And sailors took notice. And so Mm -hmm. before they ever came up to see me um, for the interview, they'd have their ideas already thought out. And if I could implement it right then and there, we did it. And that's how... Uh, we created that culture by which they knew I was serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a saying, this isn't your father's Navy. Uh, yeah. We think it's a better Navy. Um, and we went from being that top-down command and control to one where uh, people could float ideas uh, without fear of retribution because mm-hmm. there, was never any, there was never retribution against anybody on that ship. Even if it was a crazy idea, I'd look him in the eye and I'd say, I appreciate your thought, but we can't do it. And this is why. And Mm -hmm. so I never belittled or never demeaned. And it's just about treating people with respect. And and to be honest, the way I wish I had been treated as Mm -hmm. I came up through the ranks, but wasn't. And so that's what we tried to create on the ship. Absolutely. That's really special. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, And now you've transitioned to the private sector. You've been in the private sector for close to 20 years now. Uh, Do you have... Any for all the parents out there that are listening or anything um, through your time in the Navy and now your time in the private sector, do you have any words of advice or comfort for any parents who are considering sending their kids to the Naval Academy or have their Navy uh, or have their kids in the Naval Academy that the Naval Academy is the right place to be? Well, it's not the right place for everybody, um, mm-hmm. but I've got uh, two nephews who went. Uh, one's a Marine major today and one's an ensign uh, in yep. the Navy. And uh, I'm extraordinarily proud of them, but um, they need to, the parents need to understand the Naval Academy is one of the toughest institutions to get into um, in the country. Mm-hmm. It's got a higher acceptance rate than even Harvard, that that students who get extended uh, admission have a higher acceptance rate than, than people going to Harvard. Mm-hmm. And on the other end, for hiring managers, you know, when your time is up, Um, The the Naval Academy ranks number 12 on the list of universities that hiring managers want to hire their graduates. 
This is out of all the universities in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, and I think West Point is on there, they may be like 22 or 25. I don't think the Air Force Academy is on there, <laughs> but you know, I thought about why is the Naval Academy so high? And it's because we have to ad- adjust to change. And, and I've been in the private sector for 19 years now, and a lot of people get set in their ways and they don't want to change and mm. they don't want to grow and they don't want to anticipate what the future looks like for their business. And so they uh, fall behind and they lose relevancy uh, to their business. Um, but I think Naval Academy graduates have shown that we are adaptable to change and that we anticipate what needs to be done. And so hiring managers and business leaders from around the country actively search out um, Naval Academy graduates. And so as a parent, um, what would drive me is where are they going to get a great education? (laughs) Yep. Uh, And two, it's free. Um, (laughs) Always helps. (laughs) um, Although not everything that's free, you know, we we pay, we earn that that free education. (laughs) Um, But also what's going to set us up for success in the future. And uh, the results are in and and Naval Academy graduates are highly sought after in the private sector. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's funny you mentioned that. My parents always uh, joke, at least I swear they joke, uh, that I'm, I'm the favorite child because I was free. Uh, my brother and my sister made expensive choices for their uh, college education. So, yeah, uh, that that piece, you said, like you said, we definitely earn it. But uh, so it, I'm now it is nice to be proud because with the um, <laughs> my father passed away in 2003. But with the royalties from its your ship, I bought my mother a new house in State College, Pennsylvania. <laughs> I bought her a Prius. I pay all her utilities and her friends in State College think that she only has one child. And, and I've got six brothers and sisters, but uh, they only, she only talks about one of the seven. So I get it. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Uh, well, thank you so much for all that. Right now uh, on Academy Insider, we ask all of our former midshipmen uh, to answer a round of lightning, a lightning round of questions. Uh, are you ready to go? Certainly. All right. First spot is Naval Academy is known to be a tremendously beautiful campus. What is your favorite spot on the yard? Probably my rack. <laughs> oh, and that's a great parents, answer. Rack been a lot bed. of time. <laughs> that's your bed. Oh, yeah. that, that was my favorite spot. But no, uh, um, I loved Hospital Point uh, mm-hmm. because it was quiet out there and you know, nobody yells at you and you can go run and, and work out out there. But Hospital Point was great. Love that. Uh, you say uh, in your book, It's Your Ship, that first priority is good food. And based on your appreciation for that, what was your favorite meal in King Hall? Well, I don't know if they – so my least favorite meal, I don't know if they still serve it, was Han Francisco. Do they ham still Francisco. serve I don't think I ever had that. It's this piece of ham that's wrapped in cheese that's deep fried. Yeah, no, and I never had I'm that. sure it's got like 4,000 calories, and that's probably why <laughs> they serve it. Uh, but everybody always joked about Ham Francisco. But um, to be honest um, – I compared the food at the Naval Academy to all those other universities where I thought about going. The Naval Academy by far had the, had the best food um, of, of any institution. So um, I'll tell you what it was. It was bear claws in the morning. Bear, bear claws in the morning are really good. Yep. And, and Roy Bishop, every night after dinner, would get down to the steerage and get a corn dog 
And so uh, I'd never had a corn dog in my life until uh, we went down to Steerage and would get corn dog. <laughs> uh, that's great. I was a big smoothie guy myself, but okay. nightly, ste- nightly steerage runs are You guys necessary. have gone up, but we didn't have smoothies back then. You, <laughs> you have air conditioning now, so you guys are We soft. do. We do. It's a, it's a good life. Yeah, real soft. Good life. We're living a good life. Um, all right. Next question is, who or what uh, has, has the biggest influence to leadership style that uh, you know today that you can trace back to the Naval Academy? That's a great question. Um, so we had a company officer who was a SEAL. His name was Bill Payne. And uh, he was an outstanding uh, company officer. And he taught me a lot about leadership. Um, and what he taught me was uh, he's not afraid to get in there. And, you know, he wasn't he wouldn't sit at his chair and bark orders uh, he would be in there with us. Mm-hmm. And so he would be out there for PE, you know, and, and running and, and, and whatnot. And so he showed that an officer can be uh, of the people, but also above them. And so mm-hmm. we, never, we had tremendous respect because of the way he treated us. But we also knew that, you know, he was a, the company officer. He was a lieutenant and that he was in charge. Mm-hmm. But um, he was a more inclusive leader than other company officers um, that I had. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. I also know that you're a big reader in a lot of different topics and genres. What is your favorite book? Well, I'd have to say it's your ship. Uh, <laughs> if you read no other book, uh, it would be it's your ship. Um, John Maxwell has a great book, uh, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. Um, and I know John Maxwell and he's a fantastic guy. And, and so I have a tremendous amount of respect for him, but, uh, you know, I never learned much out of a book. Mm-hmm. I'm experiential. I'm an experiential learner. And so, um, the key is, and so one of the things that has made me successful post Navy, post Navy is a lot of people out there our academics telling people how to do things Mm -hmm. and the respect that we from the military have in the private sector is that we are actually out there doing it uh, with not all the resources that we'd like under difficult conditions. um, But yet we get it done. And if you think about um, the institutions of government that are respected by our fellow citizens, Mm -hmm. it's the military. And, um, and I, I was getting on a plane in Dallas, um, probably three weeks ago. Um, and I'm sitting, I I'm sitting there in my seat and this older couple walks by and I've got my Naval Academy ring on. And the gentleman said, um, is that a Super Bowl ring? (laughs) I said, uh, no, sir. It's from the Naval Academy. And he said, that's even better than the Super Bowl. So, um, what, what active duty and people at the military service academies probably don't appreciate is the tremendous amount of respect uh, that we have from our fellow citizens Mm -hmm. uh, because of our sacrifice that we make, but also because of what we're taught that we don't realize we're being taught it, how to be adaptable, how to anticipate the future, how to do what if scenarios and be prepared that, uh, that makes us, you know, highly sought after in the, in the private sector. Absolutely. Um, all right. Moving on to what is your greatest memory from your four years in Annapolis? 
I would say the the lack of sleep. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. and uh, and and so I don't know if you guys still do it. You guys probably don't have room inspections anymore, oh, or you probably or you probably have maids that come clean your rooms. But um, <laughs> uh, because I didn't like making my bed. Mm-hmm. Um, I would sleep on top of the sheets uh, during the week so that I didn't have to make the bed every morning. Okay. And the sheets have to go out once a week to get washed. And so the night before is called hotel night where you get to sleep in between the sheets. And uh, whereas <laughs> otherwise you're just laying on top of the bedspread. Mm-hmm. And so probably hotel night was a big uh, fond memory <laughs> of, of being able to sleep between sheets. <laughs> that's a, that's awesome. Um, and all right, final question, sir. What advice would you give someone who is either a midshipman, a potential midshipman, or currently a junior officer uh, like myself to focus on to being the best leader that we can be uh, at this stage in our life? So if you're in high school um, and have any interest in attending uh, the Naval Academy, you can Google the, um, the requirements or the um, attributes of the incoming class of plebes. And you can find out what they did in high school and then try to strive to, to hit as many check marks as you can. Like varsity sports is big, community service is big, uh, Boy Scouts is big, National Honor Society. So if you're a freshman in high school um, and wanna prepare yourself to be competitive, you should look at the attributes of the incoming class and um, gear yourself towards that. And so um, if you're in the, if you're a midshipman now, you need to think about um, what is it that you want to do when uh, you get commissioned Hmm. and what drives you. And it it shouldn't be getting promoted. What should drive us is keeping our fellow citizens safe. And so every day I would ask myself is what we are doing today making our shipmates safer and making our country safer. And if not, that I'm not going to participate in it. So I didn't get involved in politics or, you know, schmoozing up the chain of command. It was what's going to make us the safest, what's going to get, help us get the mission accomplished the, the best. And then once you graduate, it should be, I think you should prepare yourself to stay in the military, but also prepare yourself, um, for a future career somewhere else. That mm-hmm. way you have options. <clears throat> and what you never want to do is to um, preclude yourself from having options. I would see Navy captains retire after 30 years and they had no plan for what they were going to do the rest of their life. They didn't prepare mm-hmm. themselves for anything. And they were awfully unsatisfied after 30 years in the military because they didn't have a plan for their future. So whether you plan to stay five years, 20 years, 30 years, you should always be in the back of your mind, be thinking about what your next life is going to be like, because, you know, you're going to be living, you know, till 90 or 100 years old. You know, the days of retiring at 50 years old are not going to happen. And even if they did, you'd be bored to death. My mother taught junior high school for 41 years, retired at age 62 and then continued to substitute teach three days a week for the next 24 years to age 86. So with technology and with health improvements, we're going to live a long time and we need to think about what it is that's going to turn us on 
that causes us to get out of bed in the morning and to be excited um, that we can also make some money at so that, you know, we can live a nice lifestyle. And so I look forward to getting up every morning now uh, because, you know, there's so many things that I could do. And what people need to be doing now in the military is to prepare for your career. But if you decide to get out, what's your what are you, how are you keeping your options open so that you're marketable doing something that you have a passion for? And yeah. so that would be my advice is to figure out what you have that passion for and then prepare yourself for it. Awesome. Thank, thank you so much, sir, for uh, your time and talking with all of us today about everything that we did discuss. Um, again, I read It's Your Ship right before my time as a detailer, and it was highly motivating to me uh, of what I could do as a midshipman, but also as a leader in the fleet. So I have your book listed in the show notes of this episode uh, and in my book recommendations on my website. And sir, if someone is energized by what, by what they heard today, if they really appreciated what you're saying and are interested in your book or any of your books or any of your work, uh, where can they go to learn more about you uh, and more about your uh, your ventures uh, in the private My sector? website is apgleadership.com. And my email is mabershoff at apgleadership.com. Fantastic. Grant, you're doing uh, great work. And uh, <laughs> keep it up. And good luck with your career. Thank you very much. Sir. I appreciate it. And to the Academy Insider audience, thanks so much for listening. And I hope you guys have a great day. Thanks. Thank you all so much for listening to the Academy Insider Podcast. Please leave me a review on iTunes and be sure to subscribe. If you want to learn more about the United States Naval Academy or the Midshipman Experience, make sure to go to my webpage, www.academyinsider.com, or you can go to my Facebook page, Academy Insider, where you'll find articles, videos, and other kinds of content related to the Midshipman Experience. All links discussed in the show are listed in the show notes, so make sure to go check those out. I'm Grant Vermeer, the Academy Insider. Thank you so much for letting me be your guide to the United States Naval Academy.